I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now my guest today is Adam Harris, who's the founder of the autism charity and advocacy organization As I Am. Adam, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mick. Adam, there are various issues that arise for people with autism during the current emergency, and we'll get to those in a minute. But first, I suppose, just to lay out for listeners the condition of autism, because it's something that everybody has heard about, but perhaps outside of those who have experienced it within their own family or their wider group of friends, perhaps there are a number of misconceptions about it. I saw somewhere that you have a particular metaphor that you use to uh, describe it. And I think it's around somebody arriving in an alien land. Yes, and I think it's probably something that everybody can relate a little bit to at the moment when we've seen our idea of normal, I think, completely challenged and changed over the last number of weeks and months. Um, So I think the thing about autism is when people hear the word, as you said, there's a real familiarity with it now that maybe there wasn't 20 years ago. Now most people can point to somebody they know or someone in their community. But when you go to the next step and say, but what's it actually all about? Most people struggle with that. And when you put autism into Google, like the best definition you might get back is something like autism is a lifelong developmental condition, which relates to how a person communicates and interacts with others and how they experience the world around them. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't really help me understand what's it actually like. So how I try and explain it to people really is that it's instead of seeing it as a right or wrong way of thinking, we need to see it as a completely different way of thinking. And the best way I think that people can relate to that is if you can imagine in the morning if you were picked up and blasted into outer space and you arrived in a completely alien civilization uh, where people had different ways of communicating, but you'd no idea how they operated, where normal in that culture was very different to the normal we have in our culture here in Ireland. Um, and maybe where you really are expected as a result to, to go to school, to get a job while being completely overwhelmed by an un- unfamiliar environment. And I think this is an important point because very often we approach supporting autistic people from the perspective of normal and not normal. But that's a dreadful starting place and we'll never be able to help people if we do that. The starting place actually has to be that people's experience and concept to normal is very, very different. And for an autistic person, fundamentally, you develop in a bit of a different way to other people. And what that might mean is how you communicate and understand language might work differently. You might be very literal. Things like body language, facial expression mightn't work the same for you as they do for other people. Most people have an ability as a result of understanding communication to know what's going to happen next and kind of simple example of this probably at the moment is you know COVID-19 testing hopefully you or I haven't been for one but from seeing it on the news we might have a concept of what that experience is going Mm. to be like for autistic people actually having that concept of being able to fill in the blanks and imagine a social situation can be hugely difficult so that can cause a lot of anxiety and stress in day-to-day life and then the final piece, I suppose, is how the sensory environment works can be very different. So sometimes we hear people saying, oh, autistic people maybe don't like loud noises or don't like busy places. But actually, that's not the case. Um, we all have things we don't like, but many autistic people will have particular triggers and, and experiences of the environment that will be different to other people. So that might mean 
going to a family gathering, going to the supermarket, environments that are very normal for most people might be very overwhelming for those of us on the spectrum. And I suppose in that, Adam, and that business of managing it and managing that being overwhelmed with your surroundings, routine and structure would be very important there, I would have thought. Absolutely vital. So, you know, again, if I can kind of use a little analogy, I often think about, you know, when you, you go somewhere new for the first time, so maybe you arrive in a city late in the evening and you've never been there before, you don't tend to start wandering around the city by yourself. You maybe go to the restaurant or bar near your hotel and the next morning you get up and you get your map and you begin to get your bearings. You don't take too many risks when you're unfamiliar with something. And for those of us on the spectrum where things can be more unfamiliar more frequently, routine and structure plays a really important part in limiting the unknown and giving person that sense of control. So if we only had two words to describe autism, it would be predictability and control. The person isn't able to predict what's going to happen or what is happening in an environment at a given time. And as a result, that doesn't feel in control. So the more you can do to give person that sense of predictability to enable the person to manage their own experience, the easier everything becomes after that. Yeah, and I saw a lovely quote, um, American academic Stephen Shore, somebody who's done a lot of work in the area. You know him, do you? Yeah, very well. We work quite closely together on a number of projects. Right, yeah, no, it's just the, the, the quote I came across, great quote, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. And that really sums up the fact that there is no autism that two people might have that is the same. Totally. And I think this is one of the, you know, for people involved in autism advocacy like myself, it's probably one of the biggest challenges because we're trying to, I suppose, convey a, a message to people about understanding autism. But a key part of that message actually has to be that just as everybody in society is completely different, everyone on the autism spectrum is totally different as well. And I suppose as we've become more aware, but maybe not more educated or understanding of the issue, one of the challenges has been that there's maybe media depictions of autism. Um, you know, you might know some famous people in the press who are autistic. So Greta Thunberg is a great example of that at the moment. Uh, or you might have seen a film like, you know, Dustin Hoffman and Rain Man or Sheldon in The Big Bang Theory. And that might be your image of autism. Uh, but the reality is that autism can uh, be experienced like that. But equally, you might meet people on a day to day basis and you're not even aware that somebody's on the spectrum. So we have one in 65 people in our society, at least, uh, having a diagnosis of autism. And it's really important. I think many of your listeners, when they think about the condition, they're probably thinking about children, um, your very young children even. But there's a reality that autism is a lifelong condition and you'll be an adult for a lot longer than you're a child. And there's many people in our societies from 40 to 80 who, when they were younger, there was no understanding of autism and they've only been diagnosed as adults or they've never been diagnosed. So a big part about becoming more autism friendly is becoming much more accepting and understanding of people in our society who might do things in a very different way to most people, but who won't look any different to anyone else. Yes, very interesting way of looking at it. Now, your own situation, you were diagnosed, I think, around the age of five with Asperger's syndrome, which is on the autism spectrum. That's right. Um, so my parents would have noticed a number of differences in me quite early on. Uh, my mother always says that I never did anything until I was ready and I did it very quickly then. And that started at birth because I think I was 20 days overdue and I was born in 25 minutes. <laughs> um, and, you know, in some ways, so one of the things about autism is those of us who are autistic have scattered skill sets. So most people will have things they're good at and things they're bad at, but they're actually usually relatively close together. For the people who are autistic, there's a much bigger gap 
So as a young child, I had sentences by my first birthday. I was able to say, Santa, bring me car. Um, I had very intense interests in particular topics. So, for example, uh, ancient Egypt from the time I was a young child. And I mean, four or five, I knew everything about it. But many day to day things I couldn't manage at all. So I wasn't able to crawl when I should have been able to walk. Um, I found interacting with people my own age very difficult because I found them very unpredictable. So I didn't really socialize in the way that other children maybe would have played. I would have, if I had a particular interest or topic, I would talk about that all day. And maybe I would just, for example, line my toys up or set them up in a particular way. There was a lot of places we couldn't go as a family. Um, coffee shops, places on holidays, family events, because if there was too many people talking at once or lots of food being eaten, I couldn't cope with this. Um, and what that meant was obviously one of the key challenges when you're a young child on the spectrum is nobody knows what you're experiencing because your parents haven't learned about it yet and you don't know what you're experiencing and um, so that was hugely challenging and it meant every day I would often have quite quite violent really meltdowns where I'd become very overwhelmed and distressed um, and at the time there wasn't a great understanding of autism or even an awareness of autism in Ireland so I spent the first three years of my education in a special school and when I was eight years old I moved to primary school um, very successful transition. My parents fought really hard that I could be educated in my local community. I had a special needs assistant there for five years and from there was able to transition independently to secondary school. But I guess one of the things that used to frustrate me um, as a teenager um, was that even though I come from a family where we were very open about talking about autism, I hated talking about it as a teenager because I found that even though people really wanted to do the right thing, if people knew you were on the spectrum, they'd behave in a very different way towards you because we haven't got a confidence about it as a society. So we don't know what should we do if someone's on the spectrum. So very often people are become way too nice to you or people talk to you a bit slower or talk to you a bit louder. Um, and I also kind of felt, you know, when I was around 16, I was in a situation that my parents would have never foreseen when I was younger because I really began to socialise and make friends for the first time. But if you have a diagnosis of the condition, it's a little bit like being a member of a secret society because you know everybody else in your community who has a diagnosis, but most people don't talk about it. And at the same time as I was making friends and having a very positive experience in school, there was many people, even in my own community, who maybe the words that would have been used to describe him as he's weird, he's odd, who didn't get that sort of acceptance or indeed who weren't able to access the sort of supports that my parents were able to, to secure for me. So I think what I decided I wanted to do was, was change that and I wanted to move us from an autism aware society which is really about charity to an autism accepting society which is about human rights and making sure that every autistic person and obviously it's a broad spectrum some people can live independently some people will always need a lot of support but that every autistic person could be understood and accepted within their community so when I was 16 I started blogging and appearing in the press talking about this and we ended up founding As I Am, which has become the country's national autism charity over the last number of years. What age were you when you founded As I Am, Adam? So I kind of started the groundwork um, when I was 16, 17, and I formally set up the charity then in, in 2014. So we're six, I was 19 at the time, um, but I was started the work when I was still in school. And what I'm most proud of as an organisation, we are quite a young organisation in terms of our staff makeup, is that out of 13 members of staff, half of us are on the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. So we're really the only autism charity in Europe that's structured in the way and that really informs I suppose everything that we do. Yeah and one thing that strikes me and it might be a difficult one to answer but as, as you say the way you've developed yourself and quite obviously founding any organisation and particularly a type of organisation as I am is at such a young age is an achievement by standards of anyone but do you feel that the education you got 
the support you got from your parents and that if you had been in a different scenario, would you have been able to manage the condition as well and go on and achieve the kind of things you have? No, uh, absolutely not. And, you know, certainly... You know, I was in a documentary a couple of years ago uh, called Autism and Me on she and it showed some footage of me as a young child. And I think people were were, were amazed to see the, the difference and kind of the journey that I've, I've traveled. And I guess that's something that is really important because I really feel that I've been able to live an independent life, become a taxpayer um reach my potential which again looks different for everybody uh, because of the support I got at a young age. And that was support that was built around being autism specific, recognizing that autistic people have specific needs. Um, and then what's happened in recent years is we've tried to move away from that, I think, to more kind of generalized support that doesn't always work. And I think as well as that, what's beginning to happen is there's this kind of hierarchical approach to support. So people want to know for me, you know, was it better that you went into mainstream school or special school? I don't really see my experience like that. What I think is I was very lucky to meet very supportive people in a wide variety of settings as I grew up. So if you look at it, I went to special school and then I was in mainstream with support. Then I was in mainstream independently. And obviously my parents were there throughout the whole process, fighting and prodding and pushing. But I think what's important is that those various people that you meet along the way are really, I think, the difference between success and failure. And I think one of the things that I'm concerned about and really want to see an awful lot more of is we have too many people working I suppose to support autistic people who haven't been able to access that training and understanding around what autism is and that I think is letting a lot of people down and it's not working for anybody. And when you say that does that link into what you're saying about that in your opinion there's a more of a generalized approach now towards people with autism? So I think what you know if we go back to that concept we were discussing a moment ago about the idea that autism is like an alien planet that you can't actually support an autistic person unless you have a good understanding of the condition and you're taking a specific approach because autism is counterintuitive. So if we use the classroom as an example, you know, there's sometimes an adage of good teaching is good teaching. But in actual fact, that doesn't apply to autism because what will be good practice for most people will be the opposite for an autistic person. So let's take the most basic example. Most people, if you're teaching or talking to them, how you can check if they're listening to you is eye contact. Many autistic people who don't make eye contact uh, actually listen and understand better by looking away. So there's a reality that unless we actually take autism specific approaches uh, within a mainstream setting, absolutely as far as possible, but recognizing that there is a place for looking at autism discreetly and meeting the needs of autistic people discreetly, I think we're going down a very dangerous road. Sometimes it can sound very progressive, um, but in actual fact, autistic people need autism proofed services and everything needs to happen through an autism lens and uh, because autism is very diverse you know a lot of the people I meet in my work uh, also have mental health conditions also are members of other minority groups so we always need to provide those different types of support we need to make sure everything we're doing is autism proofed unfortunately a lot of very basic services so mental health services is a key example of this that uh, there's really no services that meet the needs of autistic people um despite the fact that autistic people are more likely to experience mental health difficulty. So uh, the will is there. We've become more aware, but there's a lot of work to be done to build acceptance and actually make sure that our society is fully autism friendly. And that sort of more mainstream approach, if I want to put it that way, Adam, that you're referencing. I mean, would you attribute that to society in one way, trying to be more progressive or inclusive in including, say, people with autism in a more... Um, mainstream setting but in doing so 
they're forgetting and neglecting the specific skills that are required in order that uh, particularly younger people with autism are able to reach their potential. Well, I'm a huge advocate of mainstreaming because accessing mainstream education was probably one of the most uh, transformative experiences of my life. So it's something I'm passionate about and want to see an awful lot more of. But where I think we're slipping up, for example, is if you look at autism classes. So these are classes within mainstream schools. There's uh, well over a thousand of them across the country, uh, small groups within a mainstream school setting. And the idea was people would go in and maybe at four or five, maybe having lots of needs, maybe spending most of their time in that class. But that hopefully by the time they were in sixth class or first year, they were moving in and out of that classroom a lot more because the whole system would have adapted in such a way that it was autism friendly. What we're actually seeing is if you're a child age four and you're starting life in an autism class, very often you're still there when you're doing your leaving search. And that's because inclusion is about more than giving people permission to enter a building. That's cheap and easy to do. What I want to see is that mainstreaming should take place in a context that people can access, uh, yes, their mainstream school, yes, their mainstream services, but that within those settings, everything is adapted so that it's university accessible. And there's people within those settings who have training in the area. At the moment, we're not seeing that enough, in my opinion. And as a result, we're seeing things like children fall out of school, autistic children not being able to access um, autism class places or indeed to cope in mainstream school. And I also think it's about, I think, accepting that inclusion and success looks different for every person. I think what we've done maybe in recent years, for example, is we've moved people into our mainstream school system. But we haven't changed our definition of success. So even if we just look at it at the moment, the only education issue that's really cutting in the press during this crisis is will the state exams go ahead or not? But there's lots of people who are autistic who are attending mainstream school who maybe the state exams aren't as big a part of their narrative um, and other supports are required, other opportunities to develop skills. So I just think if we want to be truly inclusive, we need to do that in a way that will meet everybody's needs. Yeah, and it really strikes me that whole phase of development in school, the potential for people with autism, if you know, if you're starting from a starting point to reach their full potential, there's massive uh, opportunity there for that to happen the nature of autism being that and therefore the responsibility on education authorities on teachers on, on, on various professionals and on society to facilitate people reaching that potential is huge and even from some work I've done myself I would just question as to whether that uh, responsibility is fully met by um, by the authorities and by society I completely agree. And I think there's a huge degree of being kind of, um, what is it, penny wise and pound foolish here, because we're seeing a scenario where if we can provide autistic people with the supports they need while they're in school, and maybe that means for some people being able to access a special school or a special class, for another person, it might just mean making sure that their teacher has training in the area of autism or they can access an SNA if they need it. Providing that support now means hopefully that we're going to ensure that every autistic person can have the maximum degree of independence that's possible in the future. And that reduces costs. I mean, if we look, and it's not just in Ireland, by the way, it's across the world, we're seeing a scenario that 85% of autistic people are unemployed or underemployed. We're seeing really disturbing statistics around the relationship, for example, between autism and mental health, autism and suicide. And what frustrates me about these figures um, is that in many instances, they're not inevitable. Uh, you know, bullying, exclusion and unemployment aren't part of the diagnostic criteria for autism. Uh, they're to do with society's response. And if we if we, if we properly support people when they're younger, uh, we can create a, a situation where people can fully live, 
in their community won't be as reliant on state supports. Now, of course, it's important to say there's a cohort of autistic people who will always need state supports, but that doesn't mean that a person can't still be an active member in their community. And I think that's just so important and so necessary. And of course, again, to remind us, we're not talking about charity. Ireland has ratified the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. And that makes very clear that this is the right of every person with a disability. Absolutely. No, as I say, as I am as an advocacy group and what specific kind of issues are arising for people with autism and families of people with autism in the current emergency, Adam? You know, I think it's interesting because on one hand, autistic people are no strangers to isolation, whether it's not being able to get a school place or uh, being stuck at home as an adult or whatever it might be. But the very extreme, I suppose, restrictions and isolations that we're all experiencing at the moment are throwing up particular challenges for some members of our community. So people who really rely on routine and structure, obviously that's really been removed of late. Um, many of us on the spectrum very much are anxious people and catastrophize a lot in our own minds. And you're dealing with a scenario where you're dealing with a, a news cycle that's constantly very scary and nobody's able to tell you yet when these restrictions will end, when life will return to some degree of normality. So that uncertainty causes huge difficulties. Um, there's a reality that many autistic people, the only support they receive from the state might come through the school system. And of course, that's been significantly curtailed by school closure. And then I think there's people who are struggling now, but are even more worried about the what ifs into the future. So will things, will it be even hard for a person to regulate themselves throughout the day if they're stuck at home all day? What if somebody's primary carer who they really rely on becomes ill? What if an autistic person, maybe an older autistic person, becomes ill and has to be hospitalised? Um, all of these are real concerns for our community. So what ASAM did was we did a survey um, to try and ascertain the different kind of issues and concerns. And we wanted to really double down on our support in the period ahead. So we've been publishing weekly webinars to support people with issues like putting in place a new structure and routine at home, how you can regulate yourself and your movement while you're in, in the house, um, how you can manage your mental health during this difficult time. We've been developing materials called social stories. So for listeners who maybe aren't as familiar, um, a social story uses simple images and sentences to, ex to explain and fill in the blanks of a new social situation for an autistic person. So we've developed social stories explaining what is lockdown, what is self-isolation, what is a COVID-19 test. And we've a lot more coming out in the, the next few weeks. We've also been liaising with the Department of Education because we're really keen to ensure that July provision, which is a really important uh, home home education, really support uh, during the month of July, that that is available even if it's online for families, because re-establishing routine um, after after COVID-19 is going to be hard. And also making the point um, to, to the health authorities that the two kilometre distance for some people on the autism spectrum, and this has now been accepted, may not be appropriate because some people may be routine is so important that if they can't go to a beach, they always go to on a particular day of the week or, 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 or go on a long drive to get to sleep at night, that the person really may not cope at all. So we've been kind of firing on all cylinders and it's an interesting time because at the same time, obviously, like every charity it's World Autism Month at the moment. We aren't able to do our usual events, our usual fundraisers. So we do have that worry and that concern as well into the future. Yeah, and you have an appeal to that extent, don't you, for As I Am? We do indeed. So we've developed an appeal called Fly for Autism, hashtag Fly for Autism. And it's about helping us keep autism acceptance flying this, this April because what we feel is important is you know, well, you might think, well, autism can kind of go on the back burner for the next while. Actually, our community is a really vulnerable group of people within society right now. And, you know, it's even more important that the public are aware because 
even little things like many people within our community don't understand personal space at the best of times. Um, but now if you don't understand personal space, people could be very quick to get annoyed or jump to judgment. So we're trying to use it to keep autism acceptance flying, educate people about autism on social media and on our website and through the media, but also to ask people to support our work. So we're asking people to text as I am to 50300 to donate for a euro or to tech or to go to our website as I am.ie forward slash donate and make a donation. Our, our running cost as an organisation is about a million euro every year um, and we're down about 300,000 as a result of the crisis. And obviously we think it's really important that we can continue to do both pieces of work into the future. So the two main areas are supporting the community and advocating on their behalf and then training society to be accessible. And I think both of those things are going to be even more important after the crisis. We're working as hard as ever on it, but we want to make sure we can continue doing it. Yes, very much so. And as you say, you find yourself in a, in a position there that unfortunately a lot of um, organisations doing the kind of work you do are in and that appeal, I'll mention that again at the end of the podcast. Adam, the other thing that strikes me in terms of um, particularly schools being off and we have seen um, in uh, more mainstream schooling in particular that uh, you have online learning and facilities through Zoom and what have you being organised. Has your organisation experienced any feedback from people whose child has autism in terms of the quality of education that is being offered during the, the current lockdown? We've heard a lot about this and it, the answer seems to be a broad variant. So the outset I want to recognise is SNAs, principals and teachers really gone above and beyond, you know, putting in weekly uh, daily calls to homes and um, Zoom uh, sessions, providing lots of support materials. Equally, unfortunately, I've heard of students in autism classes who have not heard from their schools since the closures have taken place. And obviously that's just utterly unacceptable. And it's a real sign that we still don't have a university equal education system. As I am today, actually wrote to the Minister for Education to ask him how can families ensure, I suppose, that that equality of access continues during this time, but also to raise some specific concerns. Um, the July provision piece that I mentioned and seeking, seeing could that be extended because so much tuition time is lost. So if the department usually accepts that eight weeks is too long a period of time for people to cope um, in terms of summer holidays, would it not be fair to say that maybe a four week scheme through the summer should become an eight week scheme this year? Uh, we also want to see what supports will be available to students who are going to be sitting the state exams because it's hard for all students, but I think especially students who are autistic or have disabilities. And I think the other thing is there will genuinely be an issue next year in terms of people being able to cope with going back to their normal routine if we don't do more now. So we've asked the department and the expertise within it if it's possible for a programme to be developed to help um, families, healthcare services, charities work with autistic people to support them with the return to school. So we are very conscious of these issues and we're trying to raise them. But again, I want to be very clear and say that that there's a lot of people doing really good work at the moment as well. Oh, yes, I think I think everybody can recognise that, as you said, it, it varies from um, from pillar to post. Adam, in relation to schooling, um, is there an issue in some places as to schools not being either able or willing to facilitate people with autism within their own community? There's no doubt about it. Um, last year, as I am, published a report called Invisible Children, and it documented, and it really was only the tip of the iceberg, 300 cases of children who either didn't have a suitable school place or didn't have any school place um, and weren't attending school. And this is just really, really concerning. Uh, we see 
patchwork quilt across the country in terms of availability of provision of autism class places. There's a particular problem in the Dublin area and the Cork area, but we actually see the problem move right across the country because often what we're seeing is, you know, the whole idea of inclusion, the whole reason why my parents wanted me to attend a mainstream school wasn't just about academics. It was they wanted me to grow up with other people in my town. So I'd know people in my own community. And yet we have a situation that even though we now have so many children attending mainstream school, you're seeing children drive long distances to towns and communities that aren't their own, fill up autism classes in that community. And then in turn, children in those communities having to drive other long distances. What I find upsetting and stressful is that we're still talking about that it's very good when a school sets up an autism class. I don't view it that way at all. Um, there's a reality that there has to be suitable provision within every community. The minister now has the power to compel uh, a school to open an autism class if he can identify that there's a shortage in a particular area. We would have liked to have seen that power used more broadly. And when I say that, we would have liked to have seen a scenario where the power never had to be used. But what we do see in a situation is there is so many schools stepping up to the plate opening two three four autism classes but for every one school that steps forward others seem to step back and that's a problem at both primary and second levels so it's just not acceptable it's just not in keeping with an inclusive culture um, and we really need to see the issue addressed you know what's concerning in particular is this is data is available demographically but it doesn't seem to be collated and managed correctly by the department and again i think it is concerning because while i'm the biggest advocate for mainstreaming students as far, as far as possible we must you know it's an established um principle within from our courts that uh, people with disabilities need to be able to access an appropriate education there are some people who are autistic who need to access a special class placement or indeed a special school placement and there simply is not enough available across the country at present yeah and some of the problems start i think at the level of diagnosis and whether how long people for example sometimes have to wait for a diagnosis before they can access services. Yes, and I mean, that has been an enormous issue since the recession where we just saw waiting times soar across the country. And it's really, really concerning because we're seeing a whole range of state agencies really ignore their statutory obligations under things like the Epson Act, the Disability Act, um, and it's just not acceptable. And again, what it's coming back to is a scenario that if we don't provide this support now, we really are just leaving people in terrible situations and leaving in our society in a terrible situation um, much further down the road. There's a whole issue at the moment as well around kind of equity within this scenario because people who are able to afford private services get support a lot quicker than people who are not able to do it. So this just has to be addressed. One of the things as I am has been working very hard on is the need for a national autism strategy. So I spoke a bit at the start of the podcast about how we need to see autism as a whole of life issue, but also that we need to recognise that autism does need discrete attention. And um, so as a result of that, we campaigned in during the general election for that for legislation to be put in place to establish a national autism strategy. So we've joined up thinking across the government departments and that we have accountability in the issue. This has become the norm in most European countries. So a number of parties made a commitment to that. And as I am actually only this week is writing to all parties saying we need to make sure the commitments that several of you made are transposed into the programme for government because what we've seen in recent years is while there has been broad political support when autism acts and autism strategies have been proposed, there seems to be an ongoing opposition at a civil service level that has prevented government action. So we need to get into the programme for government because we're losing so much time and we need to make sure that I suppose all of the challenges that emerge as a result of COVID-19 don't see our issue kick back any further because it simply can't wait any longer. 
Yeah, and as you say, some agencies are falling down under statutory obligations, but would it not be the case that if serious political will was there, that in turn would drive all elements within the public sector, I suppose, in particular, who, who deal in this area to do a job properly? Because as you say, it's a patchwork, which is worrying in a sense because it means that some people are doing the job properly within the system and others either can't or, or simply are not doing it. I think it's also about choices. I think there's a reality that as a society, we've become a lot more engaged in the idea of being equal and egalitarian. And, you know, if you think about some of the progress made in recent years, we think about marriage equality, for example. There's types of equality it's easy for the state and members of the public to get behind um, because actually they're relatively cheap. There's a reality that if you really believe in disability, um, you must be willing to spend to achieve that equality and to accept that actually, no matter what level of investment you make, there'll always be people who will rely on that support. And I think that's what's necessary is that if you approach autism from a human rights point of view, you have to accept that an investment is required and is a necessity. And I think, you know, what we've seen in recent years is some really unhelpful commentary. So we've seen things like, you know, the Department of Public Expenditure compare the spend on special ed with the compare the spend on third level and nearly make some sort of political point with it. So we need to take that out and accept that this isn't about charity, this is about people's rights. Uh, Ireland this year will report for the first time um, on its um, implementation of the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. So Ireland has to make its first report. Um, and I really hope that that will be an opportunity for us at a UN level to highlight the failings that have taken place. And for Ireland to be told quite firmly, we need to double down on our support in this area. And are you hopeful for the future? I mean, do, do, you, do you see the prospect of kids today, say, you know, a young boy or girl, six, seven, eight years of age, what they're facing into compared to perhaps even your generation or an older generation, what a lot of people with autism at that stage were facing into? Do you think the future are, is brighter for those children today? I genuinely believe there is a sea change happening within society. And I've seen that in my work over the last number of years. An example of that would be what we've achieved in the town of Clonakilty in West Cork in partnership with Supervalue, where we've created Ireland's first autism friendly town. So a town where over organisations, everyone from the guards to the GA club to all the public services have training in how to include autistic people. And we're rolling that to 10 other towns across the country this year. We've created in DCU the world's first autism-friendly university. It's the first university anywhere in the world to take a whole-of-campus approach to autism. This year, we have a pilot program where 109 schools are coming together to look at their practice in autism and how they can improve. So there is a momentum and there is a will. It just needs to be an awful lot quicker. We've talked a lot on the program today about adults and, or sorry, rather about children and education issues because we've still so much work to do in that area. But we need to balance that as well with, with realizing that while we're all good at saying schools should do this and children should do this, we all want our kid to play with the boy or girl is a bit different. As adults, we have a long way to go. You know, um, if someone came into an interview room and they'd all the required skills, they great qualifications, but they answer in a very black and white way and they don't make eye contact, will we give the person a job? There's a lot of work to be done to, to hold ourselves as adults to the same standard. And then finally, there's no doubt, I think society is moving quite quickly on this issue. There's a momentum. People want to address it. But the state is falling behind and the state needs to catch up with where society's at as so often is the case. Adam, thank you very much for talking to us today. Lovely to speak to you and a happy autism month. Thank you and the same to yourself. That's it for today, folks. I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon, and thank you for listening. The text number 
for the hashtag Fly for Autism, for the As I Am organisation is 50300 at a cost of €4 Euro to support autistic people and their families at this difficult time. Let's face it, there are nearly always people out there who have it tougher than you and those people need our support. Okay, that's it for today, folks. I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening. That text number again for hashtag fly for autism for the As I Am organisation is 50300 at a cost of €4 Euro to support autistic people and their families at this difficult time. I suppose remember there are nearly always people out there who have it tougher than you and they need our support. You can access the podcast on iCloud. You can access the podcast on iCloud, iTunes, Spotify, the usual platforms. You can let me know what you think at mick.clifford.examiner.ie or at, at mickcliff on Twitter. See you again soon. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.